still at large. Unsolved British murders. Hello, and welcome to this podcast series looking at unsolved British murders. Each episode will take a look at an individual murder or series of killings that, despite the best efforts of the various constabularies involved, have, for whatever reason, never been solved. In most cases, the perpetrator is probably still at large. Due to the nature of the topics covered, this programme is not suitable for children or people who are easily offended or of a fragile disposition. Listener discretion is strongly advised. Series 2, Episode 5 Amala Ruth Devere Whelan, 1972 Maid of Ale, in 1972, wasn't the gentrified location preferred by affluent families, celebrities and successful professionals that it is today. Back then, it had a reputation for being a bit sleazy and run down. There were many derelict buildings and the sizeable student population was attracted to the area because of the low rents and a proliferation of bedsits that were available there. One of these bedsits was occupied by 22-year-old Amala Ruth Devere Whelan. Amala came from a reasonably well-to-do family. Her father was a writer and her mother was a manager of a shop. She had done well enough at school to be able to attend Warwick University where she had been studying English, French and Italian. In 1969, Amala had her heart broken and by 1972, it had affected her self-confidence enough to cause her to drop out. Shortly afterwards, she moved to London. Amala soon built up a wide social circle and was a popular figure in the bohemian scene that was a remnant from the hippie counterculture of the 1960s. The sexual revolution of the 60s allowed for many young women to explore their sexuality and the joy it can bring to themselves and others, and Amala soon developed a taste for free love and casual sex with different men. A senior Metropolitan Police officer described her relationships with different men as being kept in watertight compartments. The change of scene from Warwick seems to have been what was needed for Amala. She was lodging and working at the Bar Lotus, a motorsports-themed pub that no longer exists, but was a popular venue in the early 1970s. Being involved with a public house is a great way to meet people, especially if you're new to an area, and Amala had only been living in Maidervale for around eight weeks. Being a young, open-minded woman in the 1970s, Amala became involved with CND, the Campaign for Nuclear Disarmament and took part in events and meetings. At the time, CND was a smaller organisation than it had been following the signing of the treaty to stop atmospheric testing of nuclear weapons. At the time, Harold Wilson was the leader of the Labour Party, which was in opposition to Edward Heath's Conservative government, and despite the widespread support for unilateral disarmament amongst Labour supporters, the party retained the stance of the Conservative government of 1963 with no plans for surrendering the British nuclear arsenal. The ground roots network of organising protests against the government, of whichever political ideology, is an incredibly social activity. Meetings are not the stuffy, formal formats of a board and minutes, they're mutual affairs, with everyone working towards getting their voice heard by those in charge. 
For an idealistic young woman like Amala, who was new to the area of Maida Vale, it was an excellent way to mingle, meet like-minded people and build a network of friends. Her liberated attitude to sex, as part of friendship, could well have been her downfall, too. In her journal were names, hundreds of names. It is possible that she was just keeping a note of everyone she had met. Some of them were, undoubtedly, friends with benefits, but not all of them. Even if they were, it is a solid piece of evidence that the police used following her death. Three days before her murder, Amala had had a casual hookup with musician Stephen Hyams. He would later go on to be in glam rock band Mot the Hoople. At the coroner's inquest, he gave evidence where he detailed going to her flat. Quote, she suggested going to bed. She did not say anything, but she turned off the light and we had intercourse. This was one of the salacious statements that the tabloids relished. Sex and murder, always popular with the gutter press. Also at the inquest were Anne de Mistral and wealthy chartered accountant Alexander Jefferson, who both lived in Notting Hill. Their statement gives an insight into the life and sexual liberty of the pre-AIDS days. On the night of the 11th of November, Mr Mistral and Mr Jefferson called to her flat. She had moved in recently to her own place, away from Bar Lotus. The freedom of her bedsit allowed her to explore life a little further. In his evidence, Mr Jefferson described the events of that evening. It had been raining that day, and within a short period of time after arriving, everybody disrobed. The implausible reason given was that it was because people's clothes were wet. Mr Jefferson was asked whether Miss Whelan had removed her clothes. His answer is staggeringly vague, given the events which followed. He said, quote, She may have done, but I can't remember. I had so many hot toddies. A pretty, young, petite, raven-haired girl with a cherubic, innocent-looking face and a highly experimental and free sexuality disrobes, and you can't remember? How many hot toddies did he have in the supposed short period of time since arriving? He must have been nearly paralytic upon arrival, and the hot toddies must have been racked up and waiting for this testimony to be anywhere near true. These were the last people to see Amala alive. On the 15th of November, a painter called to her flat. Upon entering her bedsit, he found Amala Ruth Duvere Whelan on her sitting room floor. She had been savagely beaten, raped, and ultimately killed by a stocking being used as a garrote. Her body was covered in bruises from the violent assault she had suffered prior to being murdered. Her killer had then sprayed a cleaning fluid, sometimes described as washing up liquid, on her body. He also wrote on the wall with the same fluid. He wrote one word. Ripper. The full force of the forensic sciences were put to work. Every inch of the bedsit was examined, but it had been wiped clear of any possible evidence that might link the person to the scene. This is a notable feature. Whoever did this to Amala was calculating enough to remove any evidence that could have been used to identify him. As this was probably a jealous little man who couldn't handle a free spirit, he was no soothsayer and couldn't predict that the evidence he did leave behind would be retrieved years after the crime. But at the time, the police were faced with a massive 
and monumental task. Over the course of the investigation, they interviewed more than 700 people. At the time, the police announced that they were looking for a man Amala had been seen drinking with in the Warrington public house. He was described as a good-looking man of Anglo-Asian appearance, wearing brown flares and built-up shoes. This man, sometimes described as mysterious in the contemporary newspaper reports, was eventually tracked down and ruled out. After this, the investigation ran out of suspects, and the trail, much like the case, went cold. There were a number of other cases that bore a remarkable similarity to the savagery carried out against Amala. Two years earlier, two diminutive and pretty young women had been raped and murdered by the use of an improvised garrote on two separate occasions. On March the 18th, 1970, Jackie Ansel Lamb was hitchhiking north out of London to Manchester. Jackie was just 18 years old when she had made the decision to go back to Manchester for a few days. She was last seen at Keel Services on the M6 between 4 and 5 p.m. She was wearing a blonde wig, a dark blue maxi coat and maroon shoes. Keel Services sits between junctions 15 and 16 on the M6 in Staffordshire. Service stations are convenient places for the hitchhiker to change drivers for any number of reasons. I used to hitchhike around England and it was quite an interesting way to meet people and a cost-effective way to travel. I probably wouldn't recommend it now though. Jackie was found six days later in a copse known as Squarewood near Nutsford, Cheshire. She had suffered a serious sexual assault and had been forcefully disrobed and finally strangled with electrical wire. On October the 18th, 1970, 24-year-old Barbara Mayo was found, raped and strangled in a wood near to the M1. Barbara was a student teacher. For those not familiar with the English idiom, she was training to be a teacher, and had chosen to hitchhike from her bedsit in London to her parents' home. When Barbara was reported missing, 120 police officers were called in to help with the investigation, but there were no leads, and the case, like Jackie's, went cold. They bore a striking similarity to Amala's murder. A violent sexual sadist was at large. At the time, forensics were missing a key tool, but as time passed, the regular review of the cases allowed for the samples to be tested with modern sciences. Through this, a DNA profile of the killer of both Jackie and Barbara was discovered. They had been killed by the same man, but Amala's killer has, as far as I'm aware, has not been linked to those cases or any of the other cases of young women being violently assaulted, raped and finally murdered by asphyxiation due to compression of the neck. Another case that bears a striking resemblance to Amala's murder is that of Eve Stratford in 1975. I covered that in episode 4 of the first series. Eve was a bright and ambitious young woman with a liberated attitude to her sexuality including posing for Playboy magazine. Eve had let her killer willingly into her flat. Then he attacked her, beat her, sexually assaulted her, and finally strangled her with a stocking. Almost identical in methodology to the sequence of events that overcame Amala. Once again, the progress of forensic science would provide a massive breakthrough when DNA from Eve's crime scene 
was matched to the murder of a teenage student, Lynn Whedon. Lynn was out celebrating her exams when she was attacked from behind, before being lifted over a gate into an electricity substation, sexually assaulted, battered and left for dead. There's quite a difference in victim profiles and methodology, but the DNA linked them conclusively. As it is an active and ongoing investigation, it is not known what other cases the DNA has been tested against. But if it has been entered onto the DNA database, those in custody who have committed similar offences and are in prison should have been entered onto the same system and comparisons made. DNA testing is a regular part of the criminal justice process these days, with samples being taken during the custody period. This is then entered onto the database. Since 2003, there has been a sustained effort to include all prisoners, especially those convicted before the advent of the technology, on the database. This tactic has provided justice for many families, including those of Marion Croft and Geraldine Polk. Marion Croft was a 14-year-old schoolgirl who was violently attacked as she cycled along the central towpath in Aldershot, Hampshire, in 1981. Her killer savagely assaulted her before raping and strangling her. Aldershot is home to the British Army. Thousands of people make their way through the town every year. And during the investigation, the perpetrator had a note placed on his folder stating that his whereabouts needed to be verified. But the follow-up didn't happen. And it wasn't until 21 years after the murder that her killer came into the hands of the police. He had assaulted his wife, and during the initial custody, his DNA was taken and entered onto the database. In May 2002, Tony Jasinski was jailed for life for the savage attack that ended Marion's life. Police are still investigating whether Jasinski is responsible for other unsolved violent sexual offences. Geraldine Polk was, in 1990, a 26-year-old receptionist who was abducted at knife point before being beaten, viciously raped, stabbed in a frenzy, after which the killer slit her throat and finally crushed her skull with a heavy rock. Her killer then left her body in a shallow stream near to a leisure centre in the Fairweather district of Cardiff, not far from where she lived. The term frenzy or frenzied often pops up in the genre of true crime and it can sound a little sensationalist, but it is the only way to describe the attack which killed Geraldine Polk. In total, her killer stabbed her 81 times. That is a sustained and frightening level of rage. It takes a lot of effort to stab someone that many times. Evidence obtained from Geraldine's body allowed for a DNA profile to be obtained and entered onto the database. Her killer was convicted of another violent assault and had been incarcerated at HMP Dartmoor. He was rearrested immediately upon his release and charged with her murder. In 2002, Mark Hampson was convicted of her murder and sentenced to life with a minimum period of 20 years before parole. In January 2006, Hampson appealed his conviction at the Royal Courts of Justice, but the appeal was denied. In December 2007, at the age of 40, Mark Hampson died of natural causes in HMP Wakefield's healthcare centre following a long illness. The five years he spent inside for that awful murder do not seem like enough, but at least Geraldine's family got the justice 
Gelding deserved. There is some minor speculation on the internet that Anthony Hardy, the Camden Ripper, is responsible for Amala's death, which could be an interesting theory. Hardy was convicted of the murder of three women in 2003. He was born in 1951 in Burton-upon-Trent, which would have made him around 20 at the time of Amala's murder. He is thought to be responsible for up to nine other murders, and had been arrested in 1982 for the attempted murder of his wife by drowning whilst in Tasmania. She later dropped the charges, but eventually divorced him in 1986, citing domestic violence. Hardy was arrested in 2002 following the discovery of the remains of two women whom Hardy had murdered in his flat before dismembering them, wrapping them in bin bags and putting them in the domestic rubbish of the flats where he lived. Upon entering his flat, they found another woman, Sally White, stripped naked on a bed with cuts and bruises to her head. The pathologist who undertook the investigation, Freddie Patel, concluded that Sally had died of a heart attack despite the circumstances in which she was found. This decision led to criticism of Patel's work and further criticism of the findings in the death of Ian Tomlinson, a newspaper seller who had died during the G20 protests in London in 2009. Ian Tomlinson was pushed to the floor by Metropolitan Police Officer Simon Harwood. Harwood was prosecuted for the manslaughter of Ian, but was found not guilty, despite the inquest jury finding that Mr Tomlinson had been unlawfully killed. Harwood was subsequently sacked by the Metropolitan Police for gross misconduct. The investigation into the work of Freddie Patel led him to being suspended from the government's register of pathologists pending an inquiry. In 2012, Patel was struck off from the register of doctors and is no longer allowed to practice medicine in the UK. In 1998, Hardy had been arrested following an accusation of rape by a woman working as a prostitute, but the case did not proceed due to lack of evidence. Whilst there is a possibility that Hardy is Amala's murderer, the evidence would suggest that it wasn't him. His DNA is on the database, but it did not return a match. Amala's murderer has had his DNA recovered, but as yet, no match has been found. The new evidence caused the review team to change their suspect. For a long time, the police favoured someone who had been transient to the area, but the discovery of the DNA changed their opinion. Amongst the rumours about the suspect at the time, there was a story that the killer was a pop star who had, shortly afterwards, moved abroad. This lead came to nothing too. In the autumn of 2017, police made a fresh appeal for information about her movements and murder. Detective Inspector Susan Stansfield from the Metropolitan Police's Special Casework Investigation Team at the Homicide and Major Crime Command made the announcement, quote, More than 44 years have now passed since Amala's death, but I am convinced that someone, somewhere, knows the circumstances of her brutal murder. It was a long time ago, but I'm sure there are people in the local area who remember Amala's murder. Did you live in the vicinity of Randolph Avenue in the early 1970s? Did you see or hear anything suspicious on the 12th of November 1972? Amala suffered a brutal death 
and the identity of the suspect has remained a mystery. She was a very popular and attractive female who had a wide social network of friends. She was an active member of the CND party and had numerous friends in the art world. If you have any information, no matter how insignificant you think it might be, please come forward. Maybe you didn't contact police at the time as you were too scared. But with the passage of time, now feel able to tell us what you know in confidence. The focus of the investigation has now shifted to social circles that Amala moved in. One of the primary reasons for this change is that whoever killed Amala had been admitted willingly to her flat. There were no signs of forced entry. There should be a note of caution with this though. Society in the 1970s was very different to today and admitting people willingly, despite not knowing them, was nothing particularly unusual. Nor was it that unusual for the front door to remain unlocked when the occupier was home. The possibility of the killer being a stranger still remains, but the likelihood that Amala knew her killer remains very strong. She was known to have friends in many different scenes. Music, the arts, what a dreadfully vague term that is. It could mean absolutely anything from theatre to painters, writers, photographers, sculptors, poets, a wide variety of people. Then there is the circle of people who were active in the CND movement at the time. Not everyone who participates in the planning and undertaking of protests, fundraisers and meetups needs to be an official member of the campaign. In my youth, I took part in many protests and met many, many people, none of whom were definitely affiliated to any of the official campaigns, and I suspect that this was the case in the 1970s as well. The investigation team are hoping that someone from those scenes that Amala was part of will have had a change of loyalty relating to the people of interest. It is possible that someone had begun to act differently following the attack on Amala. It is possible that on the day she died, the person responsible would have been in a highly excited or anxious state. They may have taken a leave of absence unexpectedly, either temporarily or permanently. Amala had suffered extensive bruising during the assault, and it is suspected that the perpetrator had bruises or other abrasions to his hands and possibly his face following the attack. He would likely have had to change his clothes to avoid detection, and he would have likely been notable for having a history of violence against women or an explosive and jealous temperament. It is also possible that he kept this side of his personality well hidden during everyday exchanges. A partner or former partner may well know the darker, more volatile side of this man. Let us turn to the remaining piece of evidence which I have almost ignored at this point, the cleaning fluid. It is often reported as being yellow washing up liquid. This had been sprayed onto Amala's body as she lay dead on the floor. Her killer had then written the word Ripper in the same fluid. This is a curious and deliberate act. The effort made by the killer to wipe the scene clean was also a deliberate act to delay apprehension by the police. Fingerprints were a well-known method of catching the guilty in the early 1970s, and it doesn't take a lot of forensic awareness to realise that such evidence can be damning. At her inquest, Detective Constable Tim Hargreaves was questioned about the use of the word 
but dismissed it as being a red herring. A premeditated attempt to mislead the investigation. At the time, DC Hargreaves said, quote, We think we have what we need to solve this case. Sadly, that was not the case, as 46 years later, Amara's death remains unsolved. It is also sad and notable that police are also appealing to members of Amala's family to come forward. In particular, they would like to speak to Amala's younger sister. She would have been about 12 at the time of the murder, making her around 58 years old now. It is important that she comes forward and contacts the police if she is still alive. What is notable is that despite the length of time that has passed since her brutal and senseless death, no one has come forward. It is imperative that anyone with even the vaguest piece of information about the case should come forward. There may be a wife whose husband was violent in the home, who went through periods of escalating violence before quietening down to become more stable for a while, then returning to an escalating cycle of abuse and violence. He may well have followed the case closely at the time, even commenting on her lifestyle choices in a negative and derogatory way. Sexual violence would also have been part of his personality. In the 1970s, marital rape was excluded from criminal charges, and it had been this way since the early development of English law. The position taken by the legal institutions was thus. Marriage created conjugal rights between spouses, and marriage could not be annulled except by a private act of parliament. It therefore follows that a spouse could not revoke conjugal rights from the marriage, and therefore there could be no rape between spouses. This wholeheartedly repugnant stance remained in British law until 1991, when the House of Lords overturned it, calling it, rightly, quote, an anachronistic and offensive legal fiction. This change prevented many wives from having to endure rape as a facet of marriage, although sadly it does still occur. There may be a wife of an abuser who recognises the pattern of planning, misdirection, sexual violence and an interest in the case. Did your husband spend time in the Camden and Maida Vale area of London in 1972? Was he relatively well behaved during the Christmas of 1972 and New Year of 1973, returning to his former violent ways later on? Do you have that suspicion that he was violent towards other women too? It is important for you to speak up, to bring the pathetic creature responsible to justice, to prevent this man from being still at large. Amala is buried with her father. Still at Large is an independent true crime podcast. It is written, presented and edited by me, Desmond J. Brambley. If you would like to help support the show, please visit our Patreon page by visiting patreon.com slash still at large podcast you can join in with conversations about the show on our facebook page or discussion group by visiting facebook slash still at large podcast the theme tune is by duke deck 
and online music AI at dukedeck.com. Incidental music was written and performed by Russell J. White. Links to his catalogue are in the show notes. Still at Large is a tiny yellow dinosaur media production. <laughs>